You know, as you um, look into our world, one thing is evident. It's that marriage is pretty hard, right? G.K. Chesterton, who is a famous author and theologian, once said, marriage is an adventure similar to war. Comedian Rodney Dangerfield said, my wife and I were happy for 20 years, then we met, right? There is a pervasive thought uh, in our culture that marriage equals conflict, that marriage is going to be the hardest thing that you experience. And, and you know what? There's some truth in that because when you join two sinners together permanently, there is going to be conflict. But there's also the prevailing truth of the Bible, which is that Christ-centered marriage can be one of the greatest joys of your life. And it can help you and help your spouse grow in Christ more beautifully and wonderfully than anything you could do separately. You see, the Bible tells us that when you find someone to marry who loves Christ, who has a heart to serve the Lord, who wants to walk in the Holy Spirit, and you desire those things too, then God, he will fill your life with blessing and joy. Proverbs 18.22, it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. It is a good thing. It is a beautiful thing to be married in a Christ-centered relationship. You see, this passage in Ephesians is one of the most famous passages on marriage. And last week, we did this overview of it. We kind of looked at it from a bird's eye perspective, seeing kind of what God says about marriage in general, how it relates to a covenantal type of relationship. And now today, I want us to look at these same passages, but I want us to go a little bit deeper into it. And I want us to see what the role of the husband and the wife is within that covenantal relationship. And I pray that you would open to the, you would you would listen to this with an open heart and really digest it and know that God is speaking to each one of you today. You know, as we talk about the role of the husband and the wife, there is a specific phrase that I want you to keep in mind. And it's that the man and the wife are equal, but they they are not equivalent. They are equal, but they are not equivalent. And what I mean by that is that they are equal in importance, not one is better than the other. However, there are distinctions that are in place that God has placed from the very beginning. When Paul, you see, is speaking about the role of the husband and the wife, he is not going to be backing his argument with Roman culture. He doesn't back his argument with his own thoughts or his own wisdom or experience or anything like that. The way that he persuades and the way that he argues and the way that he talks about the roles for husband and wife is that he goes back to the creation story. And he shows us that God created us to have distinctions from the very beginning. And he says that those distinctions are so important because they play a significant and profound role within our marriages too. See, verse 22 to 23 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. You see here, Paul, he uses this word headship, right? Husbands, you are the head of the wife. Now, the word head in Greek 
literally means the source. It's this word that represents, is the, the head of uh, a source of water, right? Like when you think of a flowing river, there's a source to it. There's a, there's a head that comes at the very top. It's the origin. And so when Paul writes that husbands are to be the source of the wife, he's referring to a point in Genesis where Eve was taken out of Adam. You see, in the beginning, Adam was created for a specific purpose. And what we know is that as he tried to fulfill that specific purpose, God created Eve to walk alongside Adam to help him in that. By speaking about headship, what Paul is pointing out is that we cannot understand the relationship of a biblical husband and a biblical wife unless we understand what God was doing during creation. That there was a specific rhyme and a reason for what God was doing when he created Adam for his specific role and he created Eve in her specific role. Not that one was less important than the other, but that there were distinctions in place according to their purposes, okay? If that is the case, what were the roles that God created during creation? You see, there were two roles that we read here that were given to Adam when he was created. And it was to work the land and to name the animals. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but have you ever thought about why God would give Adam those rules? I mean, as, as God was like kind of working the garden and kind of making it nice, was he, did he just get like kind of tired of gardening? I mean, was it to the point where as God was like kind of naming animals, there was, this, there was an animal with a huge neck that he just couldn't for the life of him think of what to name it. And so he said, you know what? Adam, you, you should do it. You have to do it. You, you name it. Of course not. That's ridiculous. You see, when God created Adam to name things, when God created Adam to name animals and to give a name to creation, he's telling Adam that your role in life is to create and cultivate all that I have given you. Your role is to create and cultivate and if that's the case, what did God create Eve to do? Well, the Bible says that Eve was created to be a helper to Adam. Now, church, in our English language, I think this word helper has been kind of butchered. I mean, really, when you think about it. Because the word helper doesn't really mean the same thing that it would in Greek or in the Hebrew. Because when we think of the word helper, we think of someone who is weaker. We think of someone who is lacking in some way. You think of like Santa's little helper, right? Or we think of uh, a child who's helping their mom and dad, right? We, we think of somebody who's, who needs kind of like a separate role and, and they're kind of just over there. That's what our modern understanding of helper is. But man, I want to tell you, church, that the word helper is so powerful in the Bible. You see, first of all, one of the descriptions that God uses for himself is that he calls himself our helper. Hebrews 13.6 says, So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? See, the word helper 
It means that it is somebody with power and resources and ability to help someone else. Therefore, when Eve was created as Adam's helper, this means that when God saw Adam and saw the role that he created Adam to do, there were deficiencies within him that could only be completed with Eve. There was meant to be a helper to push Adam, to encourage him, to discipline him, to guide him in a way that only Eve was able to do. It was she was meant to help Adam fulfill the ultimate purpose that God had created Adam to do. You see, if Adam was one side of a coin, then Eve was the other side, meant to partner with Adam in that cultivation and in that creation. And that church is the beauty of a Christ-centered marriage. It's two people who come together and are able to accomplish more for God than they would be able to do separately. Now, what does this look like practically, right? I think that, to be honest, there's a lot of different ways that you can apply this, but there's one in particular that sticks out to me as I was kind of reading this and, and thinking about it. God has called men to be a part of the process of renaming his creation. Now, what we know about renaming is that it's more than just putting a name on somebody. It's more than just kind of haphazardly labeling a person or a thing. When you are naming something in the Bible, what you are doing is you're reshaping their character. You are renaming them in a way that is powerful, where you are repurposing them, where you're driving them towards a different direction than they were going in before. And we see this all throughout the Bible. Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel. We see this all over the place where God, he sets a name for a person and that person's life changes. Saul to Paul. And that means for this in particular, that when you are living your life, there are people within it that are placed there not by coincidence, but are there on purpose and they're placed there meticulously by God because there are things that they're going through that only you can speak into and rename them. There are things that are going on in their lives where God has given you the tools and the abilities that you can reshape their character, where you can guide them in a different direction, where you are able to rename them, where you are given that kind of power and ability. And yet at the same time, there are things within your life that you are not able to speak clearly into them. There are deficiencies within your life that you are not able to fully speak into them. Some of you speak more truth than love. Some of you speak more love than truth. And that's okay because your wife is meant to be there to fill the other side of it. You are meant to work together in order to rename and restructure people around you. This is the beauty of a gospel-centered, Christ-centered marriage. Your purpose is to rename. Your purpose is to cultivate. And your purpose is a partner together within that marriage to do the work of the kingdom of God. That is a Christ-centered marriage. And so what Paul does, church, is that he starts out by speaking about the overall roles of the husband and the wife within a Christ-centered marriage. And only then, and only then, does he begin to speak about their specific roles to one another. For husbands, 
he starts out like this. And when you read it, you'll see that there's only one command that's given to husbands. There's only one. And it's verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wife. Boom. Mic drop. Right? That's it. Love your wife. There's nothing else other than that. That's all that husbands are commanded to do. There's no command to take authority over your wife. There's no command that says rule over her. There's no command that says command her. It simply says love your wife. You see, the word for love here is agape, which we know is the word for, it's the, it's the type of love that is most sacrificial and is the most intense type of love in the Greek language. It's the love that acts regardless of what the other person does or doesn't do. And it's a love that most resembles the love that Jesus Christ had for his people. Romans 5.8 says that God loved us when we were still sinners. In other words, God loved us when we were unlovable. God loved us when we were unlovely. And even though we didn't love him, he loved us. And it was because of his love, it was because of what he did, that we are able to love him back. Do you see that? For husbands, this is the sacrificial love that we are meant to give to our wives. If I can just explain a little bit more about what sacrificial love is, is that it means that the husband thinks about his wife before he thinks about himself. Where do I get that? Verse 26 and 27. It says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. When it says that husbands are meant to sanctify and cleanse their wives, it's another way of saying that husbands are meant to purify their wives by leading them spiritually and caring for them emotionally. It means that, look, even if you're tired, you will sit down and speak to her and ask her how her day went. It means that even if you had a long day, you will sit down and you will ask her how her quiet time was and how God was speaking to her that week. It means that you'll set aside your own needs and your own desires in order to put her first. This is the sacrificial love of a husband. Your desire for her to grow closer to Christ is greater than your desire to grow closer to her. It's kind of a weird paradox here. But look, I, I want to explain to you what I mean by that. When you're single, one of the greatest indicators of a man who has godly character is when he puts aside his own desires and his own wants in order to preserve your purity and your spiritual well-being. Look, if you are dating a guy and he says, I love you, and yet continues to push you closer and closer to sex, I'm going to tell you he doesn't love you. Not like what the Bible says. Because what he's doing is, look, he is putting his own desires 
and his own wants above your purity and above your relationship with God. And so you have to be careful about that. Don't be fooled by empty words because guess what? His actions are going to speak so much louder than words. Church, husbands are meant to do one thing. They're commanded to do one thing. Love your wife. But the only way that you're going to truly love your wife with an agape type of love is by understanding the word of God. We see this, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The imagery that Paul gives is, the, is that the way husbands are meant to protect, to purify, and to love their wives is by continually washing her with the truth of the Bible. And as you do that, putting your wife before your own needs is not going to be a chore anymore. It's not going to be something that you have to really rack your brain over and really have to try. It's going to become natural. Because as you actively choose to act in a sacrificial type of way with love, those actions will become habits, and those habits will become a natural part of who you are. For me, the best example I've seen of this sacrificial type of love is the way that my dad treats my mom. And I try not to use their relationship very often because I know that for many of us, we may come from families that don't really have that type of relationship. But for me, as I was thinking about it, this was really the best example that I could think of. My father loves my mom. Like, I've never really had any, you know, thoughts otherwise over that. And I've witnessed that my entire life. I've I've seen that, and it, wasn't, it hasn't been through these huge bursts of love where there's these events and these songs or whatever. It hasn't been these, like, any weird mountains or valleys or anything. It's just been this steady stream of just constant and consistent commitment to my mom. You know, about two months ago, my dad, he had surgery. And fortunately, like, everything went really well, but the surgery itself was a pretty big one, and so we were all praying and, and fasting over him. After the surgery, my dad, he wakes up slowly from the anesthesia, and he's, he's groggy, right? He's, he's kind of un, unsure of where he is and, and all of that. And, and for me, at that time, I was next to him. And so I immediately kind of go up to my dad and I say, hey, how are you feeling? How, how are you doing? And, and you see, the first thing he says the very first thing is not, oh, hey, Danny, I love you. The first thing he says is not anything in that way. The first thing he says is, Danny, I think your mom is going to be cold in the hospital. Can you go take her home? That was the first thing. And for me, I said, come on, bro. Like, really? That's the first thing you're going to say? Like, what about you? How are you feeling? How are you doing? You just came out of surgery. And yet, for my entire life, I've seen that habit of his. For him, he always has put my mom first in his life. He has always committed to that. And look, in the beginning, I know that it couldn't have been easy. For him, it couldn't have been. I know that because I know his backstory. I know how he grew up in his own family. So those things don't come naturally to anybody. And yet, over time, he has committed to put her first in his life. 
And over time, those actions became habits, and those habits became a part of who he is, to the point now where he wakes up from anesthesia, and the first thing he thinks of is her, and her care, and how she's doing. You see, as a husband, man, I, I want to just really push you. One of the most important things is to see your wife as one of the greatest treasures of your life. It's to see your wife as, as a person that God has placed in your life to really grow you, to help you, to support you. That they are such a gift to you, church. Whether or not she provides for you in the way that you want, you are committed to loving her sacrificially. Why do I say that? Because Christ loved the church despite the church providing nothing. And this is what Paul is trying to hit on again and again. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Why? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's that connection there. It's supposed to be connected. This is the command of the husband. Now, if that is the command of the husband, what is the command of the wife? Verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Wives are commanded to submit to their husbands. Now, I want us to note something. Both the husband and the wife are meant to be submissive to one another. How do I know that? Verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, husbands and wives are meant to both not dominate, they're both to not have pride, and they're both meant to not live by their own agenda. But they are willing to work under the will of the Holy Spirit and the people that God has placed in their lives. Now, church, the word submit, it literally means to place yourself under. It's a voluntary action that places oneself under someone who has authority over you. And that's why Paul is so clear, and that's why Paul is so persuasive in that he makes sure that we understand the creative order, that we understand the creation order before we even talk about the role of the husband and the wife. Because Paul, he brings up headship, and he, he makes sure that we understand where that's coming from before he says, wives, you should submit to your husbands. Because the wives willingly and voluntarily submit to their husbands because they understand that God has placed him in her life as the head of their marriage. Now, here's the thing. There's something important that we have to know. And it's that this submission that the wife gives to the husband, it is a willing submission. It is not unconditional obedience. You see, in the Bible, we are, never meant, we are never meant to give anyone or anything unconditional obedience other than Jesus Christ. You are meant to submit to your authorities, you are meant to submit to leaders within the church, and you are meant to submit to your husband unless they are leading you into sin. You know, people, that's why people, man, they have tried to use this verse to condone domestic violence, to condone a lot of different things, but I want to tell you that is a warping of God's word, and that is not true. The wife submits and follows her husband because she sees that he is following after Christ, 
and she desires to obey the Lord. This also means that both husbands and wives are meant to make decisions together through prayer, fasting, and the counseling of others. It does not mean that husbands make all of the decisions and the wives are meant to be mindless lemmings that just follow and never say anything. It is a joint effort because both are meant to be partners within the purpose that God has placed in Adam. You see, what it talks about with willing submission is that when you cannot agree, even after much discussion and prayer, the wife will follow her husband and submit to his decision because she trusts him and trusts that God is leading him. This is the submission that Paul is talking about. Church, this is why it is so important that you marry a Christian brother or sister. It is so important why you marry someone who believes what you believe. It's not just a command for God, it is for your sanity as a future Christian wife. If you desire to live in a way that pleases the Lord, then what are you going to do when you are called to submit to your husband whom you know does not prioritize God? Are you going to always be going against him or will you submit knowing that he is following his own desires? I've talked to a lot of different couples and they said that this type of decision where you have to, where you're on a crossroads and you have to make a decision and, and the husband and the wife follows the husband, those, those times come very, very rarely within a marriage. However, they say that when it does come, they are usually huge, life-changing decisions. And so that's why you are called to support your husband and follow as he follows after Christ. It is a beautiful thing to willfully and joyfully submit to your husband because you see that he follows after Christ and because you desire to follow after God's word. That is the beauty of a Christ-centered marriage. Now, for husbands, there's a great sermon by Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones who he studies this passage, and he said that the clear implication of the text is that husbands are not entitled to headship unless they are loving their wives sacrificially. That is the clause there that you have to understand. For a lot of us, we think that our authority over our wives are something that should be a given. However, your authority over your wife is never something that is taken. It can only be earned. Therefore, what Martin Lord Jones was saying is that, look, if, if she doesn't trust you, then the most probable reason is not because of something that she's done or something of, of her fault is because of you. It's because you are not living a sacrificial life for her. It's because, you see, you are not putting your, her needs above yours. And she is not submitting because she does not trust you, and secondly, because you do not deserve it. And the question becomes, how do you fix that? Well, love her above yourself until she desires to submit under you. This is the call of the husband. This is the call of the wife. 
in a Christ-centered relationship. This is the beauty of what is meant to give to each other in a covenantal relationship. This is why the first part is so important that you're committed, that you're willing to give regardless of feeling or action. Because as a husband commits to sacrifice in that way to, her, to his wife again and again, regardless of who she is, regardless of how she acts, regardless of whether she deserves it or not, what's going to happen is that her heart is, is, will begin to shift, will begin to change to the point where she willingly and joyfully submits the headship of her husband because she understands the sacrificial love that her husband is giving is not from his own power, but is from the power that Jesus Christ has given him. It's this beautiful thing, man. Christ in her marriage is so, so good. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Church, there's going to be so many times that as we live in our marriages, that you will fail in these roles as a husband and as a wife. But I want to encourage you, you are able to pick yourself up. You are able to forgive yourself and forgive them and continue to love because, look, your center is not in them. Your center is not in yourself. Your center is in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Look, church, Jesus Christ delights in you. He delights in you and he loves you to the point where he sacrificed himself for you. This world is so image-based. Thank God that he is not of this world. That even though he knew of your past, that even though he knew of your faults, that even though he knew of your imperfections, he loved you and through his death on the cross, it says that his blood completely covers you. And so now you are pure. You are spotless before him without any blemish and without any wrinkle. He has cleansed you. He has purified you. And our love for him and for our spouse is just a joyful response to that reality. So be free, church. Be free in that. Your spouse is good, but Jesus is the one who completes you. He is the one who loves you. He is the one who helps you. And whether or not you are married today, if you believe in him, then you are married to him and he is committed to you. Amen? Let's pray.